The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Good morning again. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do. I invite you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We'll be actually in chapters 21 and 22 today. Sounds like a lot. It is a larger section of Scripture, but it's not nearly as long as the chapter we covered just a few weeks ago. And so uh, we'll be looking at those to see why, I hope, when we get to that today. I've titled this morning's message, Losing Touch with Reality. And my introduction is a little bit longer than normal this morning, so I hope you'll hope you'll stick with me through my introduction. It was August 22nd, 1985. The day began for me like any normal day. I had just turned 19 that summer, and I, I didn't really have a care in the world as Many 19-year-olds don't have a care in the world. It was just, as far as I was concerned, everything was wonderful. I'd recently purchased my own uh, car, my my first car. My parents got me one while I was in high school, uh, but this was the first car that I was buying with my own money. Um, I still remember that car. It was a blue uh, 1980 Mercury Capri. I mean, I was in style back then, all right? That was was my car. Uh, (laughs) Um I'd recently started dating my first girlfriend. Um, unfortunately, she was getting ready to move uh, to a college out of state. Uh, so that was kind of a bummer. But again, otherwise, for a 19-year-old, life was grand. I was beginning my sophomore year of college. It was just about two weeks away. And I had a job to worry about on that particular Thursday. I worked for a company called Shaw Components. They made roof and floor trusts. Uh, roof and floor trusses for ho- for homes, for commercial buildings. And I've always been the kind of person that's been really fascinated by the way things work. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember I'd, I'd regularly like get, get my bicycle. I would take it apart, every piece of it apart. I mean, the bearings, I mean, the whole nine yards, I would take it apart, put it back together because I wanted to know how things worked. Well, Shaw Components had a lot of different machines. Uh, they had multi-blade saws, they had one-arm radial saws, they had presses, forklifts, you, you name it, they had a machine there. And so for me, it was like I was like a kid in a candy store. Uh, I hadn't been working there yet a year, but I was the only one on the evening shift that knew how to set up and operate all of the machines that they had. And so if something needed to be set up or if something needed to be cut uh, that wasn't completed during the day shift, they would call me uh, to set it up and to do it. And on the evening of August 22nd, 1985, we were about four or five uh, webs short of completing a job. I, I don't know if that's the technical name. I, I do remember that's what we called them. It's the, uh, there were the supports, the two-by-four supports that are inside a, a, a roof truss. And so I was asked to go cut these four or five webs so we can complete that job. Uh, and these particular webs, they were, they were really short. They were only about 12 inches long. Um, each web required three separate cuts, two on one end and one on the other um, and I remember I was making one of those cuts, and I adjusted the board just a bit because I was getting offline. Now, if, if you're not careful when you're doing that, if you, if you adjust it too much when the saw blade is already well into the board, 
what happens is this. You see, the, the teeth on these industrial-sized blades are about an inch long, just the teeth. And if, if you're more than an inch into your cut and you twist the board, there's solid metal there. And so the board grabs hold of that solid metal and it, and it, it yanks the board and it sends it through and it'll come out the back of the board with about the speed of a bullet. And that's not an exaggeration. It would, it'll put a hole in another 2x4. So if you're cutting a long piece of board, you know, it's, it's a scary experience to be cutting a line, to have it yanked out of your hand like that, but your hand gets away before it gets anywhere near the saw. But when you start with your hand only 8 inches from the blade, there's really no time to react. Your hand just goes into the saw with wood. And that's what happened to me on August 22, 1985. I didn't even feel it happen. People find that odd uh, when I tell them that, but I mean genuinely. I didn't feel it happen. It happened that fast. Now, of course, I felt it afterwards, but I didn't, I didn't even know what had happened until I looked down at my hand. And so I ran to the front of the factory. A co-worker drove me the four or five miles to the local hospital room, and the doctors took one look at me and made, uh, they, they said something that no emergency room patient ever wants to hear. They looked at me, and I promise you the very first words out of their mouth were, we can't help you here. Um, and so they started to make phone calls about where they could send me. There were two options in their mind. They could airlift me to a hospital in Charleston, South Carolina, or they could send me by ambulance to a hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. And you know, it's funny how we remember some things, but other things we don't. And I don't mean to be Forrest Gump here, but I do remember, I do remember that evening there in the hospital with my mutilated right hand laying in the hospital room and I promise you the only thought that was going through my mind was this I've never flown on a helicopter that would be fine because that'd be kind of cool uh, to do that but I didn't get to fly on a helicopter I took an ambulance ride instead and so 36 years later still never been on a helicopter so any of you are helicopter pilots hook me up sometime if you would uh, but that was the accident Beginning on October 23, 1985, the only thing I really saw of my right hand for the next several months were the tips of my fingers. The saw didn't cut my index finger at all, um, so for the next eight days after the accident, I saw the tip of my thumb and the tips of three fingers sticking out the end of the bandages. But unfortunately, the cut was so deep into my hand that it cut all the blood vessels that went to my index finger and the doctors heroically tried to save it, but they weren't able to, and so eight days later, that finger was amputated. I was in the hospital for three weeks, I had five surgeries in those three weeks, and my hand was in so many bandages it looked like I was carrying a football with me. I, that's, not, again, not an exaggeration. And so at the end of those three weeks, they sent me home with bandages, of course. And for the next several months, I would show up to my doctor's appointment for a checkup. They would remove the bandages so the doctor could examine the injuries and how they were healing. And then I would immediately be rebandaged and sent home again until my next checkup. And this process went on for the next couple of months. Meanwhile, my sophomore year in college had started. Um, I arrived in my classes about a week late because of my hospital stay, but I jumped right in where I'd left off. I quickly learned to write left-handed. Uh, not very well, but I did learn how to write left-handed so I could take notes um, since my right hand was covered in bandages. I was attending a small community college at the time. My mom worked there. I knew most of the professors, had lots of friends on campus. And people would ask me what happened. They would you know, see the bandages and actually the natural, well, what happened? And I would matter-of-factly tell them I'd lost two fingers on my right hand in a sawing accident. 
And they would inevitably ask me, you know, how I felt about it. You know, are you okay? And I would, invariably, I would answer them, you know, it happened. There's nothing I can do about it. And so it's just time to get on with my life. Not a big deal. And everybody seemed to remark, you're handling this so well, Brian. I just can't believe how well you're handling it. But there was one one young lady. I don't remember who she was. She wasn't a particularly close friend of mine. Uh, But she looked at me and she said, you're not dealing with it. You, you haven't started dealing with it yet. And I, re- I remember being intrigued by her comments, thinking like, well, what does she know what's going on in my mind? But yeah, it's intriguing what she's saying, because I was quite certain that I was dealing with it. But because my hand had been bandaged, bandaged 24-7, except for those few occasional visits to the doctor's office, unbeknownst to me, I really hadn't been dealing with it. Underneath all of those bandages, I was losing touch with reality. Here, here's what I mean. It was really quite easy for me to tell people that everything was long, as long as or everything was okay, so long as those bandages were on my hand. And from my perspective, I I, I didn't feel myself. I don't I don't think I was lying to them. I genuinely, honest to goodness, I felt like everything was fine. In fact, I believed it so much that when it came time to go to the doctor to remove the bandages, I chose to go alone. Now my wife is not surprised by that because she knows that I'm um, headstrong and independent. Uh, but my mom says, you sure you don't want me to go? I said, no, you don't, you don't need it. it. It wasn't because I didn't want to spend time with my mom. I genuinely didn't think that she needed to be there. I thought I was handling this just fine. The doctor's office was about an hour from my house where I lived with my parents. And I'm going to tell you, honest to goodness, to this day, 36 plus years later, to this day, I have no idea how I made it home from that doctor's appointment. None. The trip is a blur to me because all I remember is for that hour when I'm supposed to be driving, I was driving, but all I remember was staring at my hand. Staring at it. And when I finally made it home, there were a couple of friends from the college. Jerry and Christy were there to meet me at my house. They knew the bandages were coming off that day, and I guess they knew better than I did that I would probably need some friends around. And right there in their presence, I lost it. All of the weeks and months of saying, oh, it's okay, no worries, everything's going to be fine, all of that, all of it, out the window, every bit of it. And from that moment on, I had to start dealing with reality. You see, my hand wasn't out of sight, out of mind anymore. And so in the weeks and months that followed coming home that day without any bandages, those weeks and months were some of the darkest days of my life. See, i would lived a fair, and I have lived even since then, a fairly protected middle-class life up to that point. And so those days were for the most part, and they remain still in my life, some of the darkest moments in all of my life. They had a profound impact on how I understand God and His role in this world. Beloved, I wonder, have, have you ever had dark days in your life? I know you have. Because we all have. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. Now, now maybe your days haven't been as dark as some of mine, but then again, maybe your days have been far darker than mine. I don't know. I just know that we've all had dark days in our world. I share that this morning because we're going to be looking in our text today at some very dark days in David's life. David's not the king yet. Saul is still the king and these chapters that we're looking at these more, these two chapters, 21 and 22, 
They represent for David the first time in his life that he's literally on the run for his life. Yes, we've seen before David has had to escape Saul in the past. But in these two chapters, David is going to move no less than six times. He has to change locations no less than six times as he flees for his life. And he's running from a man who has completely lost touch with reality. So if you're in 1 Samuel 21, say Amen. All right. Read those two chapters, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. Follow along with me, please. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when we go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, Detained before the Lord, his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled from that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he, came, he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me 
And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and his father's house, and the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who bore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on the day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life with me you shall be in safekeeping. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank You so much for our time together and we thank You for Your Word. We believe that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, today 
in this room that You would send Your Spirit to accompany Your Word proclaimed. That You would allow us to be transformed through Your Word. Lord, if there's anyone here today, even one who doesn't know You through Your Son, Jesus, Lord, I pray that today You would grant them faith to repent and to trust in Jesus. Father, for those of us who do know Christ, I pray that You would help us to more faithfully follow Christ as a result of encountering You through Your Word. Lord, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So our central idea for this morning is this. In the midst of life's most difficult moments, God is working out His plan. In the, in the midst of life's most difficult moments, God is working out His plan. And so whatever, whatever moment that is in your life, whatever moment that is in my life, whatever moment that is in David's life, God is working out His plan. I have five points I want to make from our text this morning. Point number one is David's fearful flight. You see this in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 21. This is David's first move. Last week, David was in Gibeah. Gibeah is the uh, town that Saul had for his headquarters. It's his hometown. In the very first verse today, we're told that David makes his way to Nob. Now, Nob is only about three miles away from Gibeah. It's a short journey. But Nob is home to the priests of Israel. And David makes his way to Nob so that he could visit with Ahimelech, the priest. And we're told there in verse 1 that Ahimelech comes out to meet David and Ahimelech is trembling. We're not told exactly why he's trembling, but we are given some clues. Ahimelech asked David, why are you alone and no one is with you? You see, Ahimelech has helped David in the past. They, they know one another. And Ahimelech knows enough about David and his travels to know that he doesn't normally travel alone. So something isn't normal. Something is up here. Could that be the reason why he was trembling when he comes out to meet David? That he senses that something is not right. You know, all the pieces aren't adding up. He can't quite put his finger on it, but he knows something's just not right. And David, surely seeing Ahimelech trembling, recognizes that he knows that Ahimelech knows something. He doesn't know whether Ahimelech is going to side with Saul or is he going to side with David. And so David decides to tell a lie. He uses deception. He says to Ahimelech, and I, I paraphrase here, he says, you know, oh, you know, King Saul has sent me on a top secret mission. I can't tell anybody about it. But I, but I am on my way to meet some guys who are going to help me out with this plan. And so if you could give me some supplies along the way, that would be great. You know, do you have any bread, for example? Uh, maybe five loaves of bread. Could you, could you give me that? And Ahimelech tells David that the only bread he has on hand is holy bread. It's the bread of the presence. It, this bread of the presence would have consisted of 12 large loaves that would have been baked regularly to be put on the table inside the altar. Um, this, this bread was regularly rotated out so that it could be replaced with hot, fresh bread. And then the bread that was rotated out was only to be eaten by the priest. It was holy bread. But Ahimelech has compassion on David and on the men that he's going to meet. And so he asked David if the men have kept themselves from women. And in other words, what he's asking is, so, so the husbands among you, have they, have they been abstaining from sexual relations with their wives? And you might think, well, what's the big deal there? But Ahimelech is asking that question because 
both the husband and the wife are considered at least ceremonially unclean after they have sexual relations with one another for at least 24 hours. So David assures Ahimelech that the men have kept themselves from women. In fact, he tells them that you know it, when it's when it's an ordinary journey, he says, you know, we we've kept ourselves pure. You know, so since this is a special mission, you can know for sure we have been um, abstaining. Now, just a, a quick side note here: some of you might be familiar with the um, with David and Bathsheba and how David's trying to cover up his adultery. And and he he this happens in Second Samuel. He he invites Uriah, the wife of Bathsheba, back, thinking that maybe you know Uriah, you know, he comes back from the war front, he'll he'll sleep with his wife, and then Uriah will think that the baby is his. But Uriah, for two nights in a row, refuses to sleep with his own wife. You know, why why would he do that? Because in Israel, they understood that when you're going to war, you don't want to be unclean. And so Uriah, being the better man than David was in that instance, says, "No, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be unclean." Anyways, back to our text today. These men are clean, at least in Ahimelech's note of the uh, mind, they're clean. And so he decides to give David the bread. But there's a certain man, we're told, that's watching all of this take place. A certain man is keeping his eye. This guy's name is Doeg, the Edomite. Um, Don't ever name your children Doeg, okay? It's not not a good name to be named. I'm not going to say more about Doeg now because he's going to figure in prominently toward the end of our text. But before David leaves, he asks Ahimelech for one more favor. Do you have a sword or a spear? And Ahimelech gives him Goliath's sword. And David goes on his way. And this is also going to figure in prominently toward the end of our narrative today. That's point number one, David's fearful flight. Uh, Point number two is David's insane escape. The end of chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. David makes his second move in our text. This time he's moving from Nob to Gath, about 25 miles. And it's ironic that he's, that he's going from Nob to Gath while he's carrying Goliath's sword because Gath is Goliath's hometown. So imagine showing up to Goliath's hometown and saying, yeah, look what I got in my hand. This is your champion's sword. But we might be left wondering, why would David go to Gath? And the answer is actually rather simple. He's going to Gath because he's fleeing from Saul. And Gath is enemy territory. It's enemy territory for David and it's enemy territory for Saul. And Saul's not going to follow. As much as Saul wants David dead, he's not going to follow David into enemy territory. But maybe David hasn't thought his plan through all too well because when he gets to Gath, he meets King Achish. And Achish's men, immediately they recognize David and they say to, they say to their king, you know, you know, isn't this the guy that they sang that song about? You know, you know the song, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Isn't this the guy? And when David finds out that they know who he is, we're told that he immediately he becomes afraid of what Achish might do to him. And so David pretends to be insane. It's the second time in this chapter, the second time David is using deception to escape from his problems. First time when it, when he was with Ahimelech, he you know he tells him a lie, and and right now you might think, well, that appeared to work. He got he got away with that. Um, we'll see, of course, in the next chapter, disastrous consequences for that lie. Now he's pretending to be insane. He's making marks on the doors of the gates. He's letting his saliva run out of his mouth and down his beard. He's just looking like a crazy man. So it's enough for Akish to tell his men, you know, I already have enough crazy men in my kingdom. I don't need one more. You can just send him on his way, please. 
And so we might think, wow, in, in one chapter, David's been deceptive twice and, and he's gotten away with it both times. Is the Lord blessing David's deception? And categorically, no, the Lord isn't blessing his deception. David's still on the run. David's still a wanted man. David still has a price on his head. But God is at work in David's life. God is using all of the circumstances in his life, including his own personal sin, so that God can accomplish what he intends to accomplish in David's life. And so, beloved, listen, it's always best when we cooperate with God's moral and ethical standards. But regardless of what we do, God is going to carry out His plan. Sometimes He'll do that despite our bad behavior. And sometimes He'll accomplish His plan through our sin and bad behavior. That's point number two. Point number three. We see David's family rescue. These are the first five verses of chapter 22. We make our way into chapter 22. David's now making his third move. He goes from Gath to the cave of Adullam, about nine miles. His family hears about it and his family decides to join him at the cave. A family reunion happening there. But along with the family, we're told in verse 2 that everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul, they gathered with him there. And so there were all in all about 400 men there in the cave with David. Now, on the one hand, we might think, this doesn't sound like a very formidable fighting force. It sounds like a lot of desperate people, right? Everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, everyone who's bitter in soul, these are the, these are the folks that are gathering to, to fight with David, to be on David's side. But on the other hand, if you know anything about desperate people, you know that desperate people are oftentimes at the end of their rope, and they can be actually a very tenacious fighting force, a tremendous fighting force. But David has bigger problems on his hands than just 400 ragtag soldiers on his hands. You see, he's no longer running just for his life. Now he has 400 other people to take care of. And among those 400 people are his aging mom and dad. And so David makes his fourth move. And this is his longest move to date. He moves from the cave of Adullam to Mizpah of Moab. It's about 70 miles. Now, 70 miles, we might, you know, in our day and age, we don't think anything of 70 miles. We can be there, you know, just over an hour. Depending on some of you driving, probably just under an hour uh, you can be there, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's not that long a trip. But for David and his clan, which again is including his aging parents, this is a multiple day journey, probably at least a week long, if not two weeks long. The terrain isn't flat. The terrain is mountainous. It's a dangerous journey, and David is still a wanted man. So he's not out traveling on the main roads as he's waking his, making his way to Moab. But why Moab? Probably a lot of reasons why he would go to Moab. Again, first, it's enemy, enemy territory. Saul's not going to chase David into Moab. It's enemy territory. But I think the main reason David's heading to Moab is to find a safe place for his mom and dad. He's trying to find a refuge for his mom and dad. Saul's angry with David, which means that he'll take out any revenge he can on David in any way he can, which means including he would take out his family if he had to. And so David wants to find refuge for his parents. And David's dad's grandma was a Moabitess. You remember her name? Yeah, there's somebody, it's a book in our Bibles named after her. It's, it's Ruth, the Moabitess. That's David's great-grandmother. And so surely, in David's mind, 
One of the reasons he's going to Moab is because, if you will, this, this is a kinfolk area. This is a place where they're going to be able to find refuge. They're going to be able to lay low. But it's not a place for David to lay low. David finds a place for them and then he makes his fifth move. He goes now to the stronghold. We're not told exactly where the stronghold is. One of the leading contenders for this stronghold is a place called Masada. Um, you may be familiar with Masada. Um, it's an elevated stronghold on the western shore of the Dead Sea. Um, and so it's possible, perhaps even likely, this is where David goes, but he doesn't stay there long either. The prophet Gad comes to him and tells him not to remain at the stronghold, but to go up into the land of Judah. And so David makes his sixth move now. And he goes into the forest of Hereth. But why, why does the prophet want David to leave the relative security of the stronghold? I mean, in that stronghold, it would be very, very unlikely for Saul to find him there. And if Saul were to find him there, the, just the elevation of it, David would have the superior position and Saul would never be able to overtake him. So why does the prophet want David to move back into Judah which is exactly where Saul is looking for David. Well, we're not told, again, explicitly why the prophet wanted him to go to Judah. But I think we can hazard a guess, and an educated guess at that. Beloved, we'll never solve our problems. We'll never solve the problems we faced in life by running and hiding from them. David, David could have stayed in that stronghold until Saul died. But that wasn't the problem. Or that wouldn't solve his problem, rather. You see, if David was going to lead the people of Israel, if he was going to lead that nation, then he had to start leading that nation of Israel even while he was facing difficulty. A couple of weeks ago, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky was encouraged by some people to leave Ukraine. They believed his life was in danger by staying there. And indeed, his life is almost certainly in danger by staying there. But he refused to leave. Now, I, I, I don't know the man personally. I only know what we read in news reports. I'm sure there are many reasons that factor into why he chose to remain. But chief among those is certainly the plans that if he's going to lead the people of Ukraine after the invasion, that he needs to be with them during the invasion. He needs to be with them during their darkest times if he's going to be with them through their good times. And David needs to be with Israel during these dark days of King Saul. Beloved, I don't know what problems you're facing right now, dark problems that you're facing. But I do know we can't run from them. We can't hide from them. We have to deal with them. We have to deal with them. Point number four. David's sorrowful consequences. What happens here next, this is verses 6 through 23, what happens are... They have to be some of the most sorrowful events in the Bible. And they all happen because Saul has lost touch with reality. He is completely paranoid. After David moves back to Judah, it doesn't take long for word to get back to Saul that David and his men have been discovered. But we also learn, interesting, we also learn that Saul's men weren't too eager to tell, tell Saul exactly where David was. So Saul hears from his men that 
David has discovered, at least in a general whereabouts, but nobody's going to tell him exactly where he is. What does this tell us about King Saul and his, his grip over his army? Well, at best, King Saul has a divided army. There are some who want to follow Saul. And they, they, you know, David, I think he's somewhere in this general vicinity. And then there are others who know exactly where David is and they say, I'm not telling you. I'm not going to tell you where the man is. And so this leads Saul to scold his men. He's sitting underneath the tamarisk tree. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 22, he says this, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, again, notice he doesn't call him David, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as this day. Now, as I read that, I do this this little thing right here, right? This is the world's smallest violin playing My Heart Bleeds for You, uh, Saul. It sounds like a lot of pathetic whining from Saul. That's what it sounds like. But this is also, listen, friends, this is, he is deadly serious about this. And this is when Doag comes back into the scene. Doag the Edomite. Every time, by the way, he's called Doag the Edomite to, to reinforce for us that he is an outsider. He's not part of the nation of Israel. And as an outsider, he says, this is my opportunity to make a name for myself. And he tells Saul everything that he knows. And notice this, when he's telling Saul everything he, he, he knows, he makes the problem look more and more menacing to Saul. Doeg's language is increasingly militaristic. First, he says, you know, I saw David. He was coming to Nob. Then it's, well, he was having the priest inquire of the Lord for him. Next, third, third thing, Doeg tells Saul that Ahimelech gave him even provisions. Now, you can't fight a war if you don't have supplies, right? But Ahimelech is giving David provisions. And then the coup de grace. Doeg tells Saul that Ahimelech gave David Goliath's sword. And why else would David need provisions? Why else would he need to inquire of the Lord? Why else would he need a sword unless he was planning war? Now, Saul at this point in his life is already off his rocker. All right? He is already in the deep end of the pool. He doesn't need another push. But that's what Doeg gives him. And so Saul wastes no time. He summons Ahimelech and his family to come to Gibeah. Remember, they're just three miles apart. And so Ahimelech and his family, they make their way to Gibeah. Ahimelech, his conscience is clear. Frankly, he's probably wondering, why does the king want to talk to me? Why, Why is this matter so urgent? Why does he ask me to bring my whole family? But Saul gets right to the point in verse 13. He says, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse and that you have given him bread and a sword and have required of God of him so that he has risen against me to lie and wait as this day. Why are you playing evil against me, Ahimelech? Ahimelech, again with a clean conscience, replies, And who among your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored among your house? In other words, I mean, I thought he was your best guy. What's the big deal that I'm talking with him? And he says, is today the first time that I've talked with him? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, I've done this before. What's the big deal today? Let not 
Ahimelech said, Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Ahimelech said, hey, I'm on your side, Saul. I don't know what you're talking about. I've helped them before and it's never been a problem. What's the big deal now? But Ahimelech's words mean nothing to Saul. Saul's already made up his mind. And he orders the immediate execution of Ahimelech and his household. But here we're made aware again of how deep the divisions are among Saul's own servants. Because none of his servants. Saul says to his servants, you kill him. And they're like, not me. I'm not going to do that. And so Doag steps up. Again, wanting to make a name for himself. He steps up. He slaughters 85 people. 85 people. We're told men, women, children, infants, even their livestock, the oxen, the donkeys, the sheep. He kills them all. Except one. One guy, Abiathar, Ahimelech's son, manages to escape and he brings word to David about the murder of all the people. And with bitter introspection, David rightly understands his role, his responsibility in the execution of all those people. In other words, if David hadn't been deceptive to start with, Ahimelech and his family may still be alive today. It was an awful event. It was something we wouldn't wish on anyone. But I want, you, I want us to notice this, friends. Notice this, that God is still working out His plan. God is going to use the sin of Saul and the sin of Doag to accomplish His purpose. Now you might wonder, why, how is He going to do that? God has already withdrawn His Spirit from Saul. The Spirit has rushed upon David. We saw that back in chapter 16. Now, Saul's men, his own fighting force, they're more divided than ever. His servants are more divided than ever. Some of them want to follow Saul, but a growing number of them are more favorably inclined toward following David. And now, Saul, at his own hand, has killed all the priests except one. All the priests that formerly were loyal to Saul... All of them are dead, except one. And where is that one now? Well, that one's on David's side. You see what's happening? Saul, in his, insan- in his insanity, is killing even those people that were on his side so that now the kingdom is being transferred to David. And even the priests now, those who remain, is one. Even the priests are on David's side. God is working out His plan. Point number five. Let me land this plane. Um, I want us to see David's greater purpose. We read this story. We read about the tragedy, the dark, dark, dark events of these chapters. But where does all this lead us? Early in our service, Morgan read from a passage in Matthew chapter 12. And in that passage, Jesus makes reference to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and David's eating of the holy bread. And in that passage, Jesus also makes this comment. He says to the people that are listening, He says, something greater than the temple is with you right now. Beloved, David's going to go on. He's not the king yet. He's been anointed yet, but he's not starting to serve yet. He's going to go on, though, to be a mighty king in Israel. He'll go on to write more than half the songs that are in our Psalter. And King David is still 
revere to this day. But David is only a pointer. He's only a pointer. He's only serving to point the way to somebody that's greater than him. He's not, he's not doing this. He's not saying, look at me, look at me. He's saying, look at who's to come. Look at who's to come. There's somebody more important than me that's coming, and that somebody is Jesus. Jesus, a descendant of David. Jesus, who would live through some pretty dark days of his own, right? I thought about some of the parallels there. When, you know, when Jesus was a toddler, what did he have to do? He and his family, they had to escape the country. Why did they have to escape the country? Well, they escaped the country. They went to enemy territory. Why to enemy territory? Because there was an insane king who wanted him dead. And Jesus had to leave. Then as a man, Jesus had to deal with one of his closest companions wanting to betray him. Not wanting to betray him, but actually betraying him. And then had even an even closer companion deny that he even knew Jesus. And then finally, and perhaps most excruciatingly, Jesus had to suffer the shame of having His heavenly Father's wrath thrust upon Him while He was on the cross. I'm going to tell you, Jesus' dark days make anything that you and I are going through look like just a, a walk in the park. But why did He do that? Why did He go through those dark days? Why did He allow Himself to suffer in that way? How was He able to make it through those dark days? This is not, this is not my idea. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says He did it for the joy that was set before Him. For the joy that was set before Him. He suffered because He loves us. He suffered and gave His life so that all who turn from their sins and turn to Jesus can have eternal life. That's David's greater purpose. is to say, again, not look at me, but look at Him who's to come. I wonder this morning, have you ever experienced that forgiveness yourself? Have you ever turned from your own sin and trusted in Christ? And all, all that He went through, He did it so that we might have life. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, Lord, I thank You so much for Your grace and Your kindness to us. Thank You that You you give us stories in the Old Testament that point us forward, that point us to a, an objective reality of something greater that was to come. You give us stories of dark days that David went through as he fled for his life. And some of us, we, we perhaps remember dark days that we've been through, or perhaps even for some of us, dark days we're going through. But Lord, the darkness that we've gone through is, is nothing compared to the darkness that Your Son experienced on our behalf. That He gave Himself willingly so that we might have life. Lord, I pray there was anyone here today that doesn't that's never understood that reality. Perhaps, perhaps they would ask a, a friend that they're with today, maybe a family member. They're certainly welcome to come and talk to me about what, is, what does that mean to follow Jesus, to be delivered from darkness into light. 
Lord, for those of us who have experienced that deliverance, Lord, that we would recognize that even in our darkest moments that we know that we've been delivered from the greatest darkness that has ever existed. And so, Lord, that we might worship you for the grace that you've showed us in our lives. Lord, I thank you. I love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close with this word of Scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. The Apostle Paul says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God bless you and have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.